Hello and welcome to another episode of the This Is Bitcoin podcast, where we talk to Bitcoiners about Bitcoin privacy, technology, self-sovereignty, and building Bitcoin businesses. I am your host, Bitcoin Gandalf. My guest today is Yosef Tetek, a man who wears many Bitcoin hats. By day, he is a brand ambassador for Trezor and Satoshi Labs. By night, he's a writer and podcaster. Yosef has written two books published in his native Czech language. They are Enemies of the State, Friends of Freedom, and Bitcoin, Separation of Money from the State. He is a contributor to the BTC Times and Bitcoin Magazine. His podcast, also in Czech, is called Stakuj.cz. He has a background in Austrian economics, having studied the subject at university in the Czech Republic. In this episode, we talk about Josef's education in Austrian economics, and uh, Josef summarizes what Austrian economics is all about, if you're not familiar with it. Josef's journey from crypto to Bitcoin, how the Lightning Network destroyed shitcoin narratives. Uh, we talk about whether Bitcoiners leave any room for being wrong about Bitcoin, potential risks facing Bitcoin, and how Yosef gets so much done with his podcast, writing, and, and his day job. In addition, we are going to be uh, donating sats to free open source software Bitcoin projects. And so for this episode, I will donate all the sats streamed to This Is Bitcoin podcast via Podcasting 2.0 apps to Yosef's chosen uh, project, the BTC Pay Server. So if you're listening to this right now and you're not on a Podcasting 2.0 enabled podcasting app, I recommend you turn it off and you go in over to one of the um, Podcasting 2.0 enabled podcast players if you want to support free open source software and you stream some sats. This is going to be done for the entire uh, month after release. So I'll be releasing this today on the 20th of January and the sats from today until the 19th of February will all be donated to BTC Pay Server in Yosef's name. Thank you very much, Yosef, for coming on the podcast. By the way, this is going to be a part one of two. Uh, there was more stuff that we wanted to discuss, so I will have Yosef back for a part two. But I appreciate his time, and I appreciate you all for listening and streaming sats so we can help continue to fund cool FOSS projects. I hope you enjoy. All right. Yosef, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. I understand you have a background and an interest, uh, potentially before your days of uh, being orange-pilled, uh, in you know, interest in libertarianism or, or libertarian ideals and Austrian economics. Um, I wanted to actually ask you, well, first of all, how you became interested in those topics, because for for me i didn't even know what I, I don't think i really knew what libertarianism i might have heard the word before i don't think i even knew what a libertarian was um and certainly didn't know what austrian i'd never heard of austrian economics before bitcoin and i studied economics at university so how, how did you how, how did you hear about these topics and then how did you become interested in them yeah so i was a libertarian and austrian economist a long time before i discovered bitcoin and uh, it's basically quite simple because uh, I got it at school. Basically, I got a proper schooling in Austrian School of Economics and the political philosophy of libertarianism. And curiously enough, it was uh, like a state-owned school, uh, like the public education in Czech Republic. Uh, there, are, there are some good schools, uh, there are some bad schools, but uh, 
like 12 years ago when I was studying economics it was still more on the good side and I just had a good luck of encountering the good teachers at uh, my bachelor's degree when I was doing my bachelor's degree uh, I had a curiosity, curiosity uh, to study economics uh, and I just, uh, just had a good luck encountering uh, like a young guy, PhD candidate who was heavily into Austrian economics and just uh, opened up this whole world to me. Then I switched school, uh, went to University of Economics in Prague and uh, the faculty of uh, economic policy uh, was heavily dominated by Austrians, like Czechs by nationality, but Austrian economic economists by uh, their passion and profession. So in those years, it was 2009, 2002, 2011, uh, I studied two years under uh, probably one of the best Austrian economists uh, in the U in Europe, maybe in the world, uh, some of them. Like th there's Mises Institute in US, uh, like a big mecca of Austrian economic economists today. And then there was uh, this faculty of economic policy uh, at Czech uh, University of Economics. Sadly, uh, the faculty was basically dissolved uh, several years after that it still functions but the austrian economics uh, doesn't get any love anymore in there but while i was there i was able to study under uh, the professor shima who coordinated translations of like mises's human action mario rodbar's uh, uh, principles of economics and uh, like other major works like that and my uh, like diploma was on public goods and the private provision of public goods so just uh, f years before i found out about bitcoin like in like 2009-2010 uh, i was uh, like heavily leaning towards basically what we would call anarcho-capitalism uh, and uh, should i go with uh, how I found Bitcoin then, or is uh, that well, like I, No, I have a couple of questions actually about some of the specifics and just some observations and stuff that I wonder if you can give me some insights on because uh, you, one of the things that's really striking is, so you mentioned that you got, you, you were taught Austrian economics at school and you said it was a state school. So is that referring to like a secondary school when you're like a teenager until you go to university? Uh, no, it was a university. It was, oh, it was a uni uh, so, public okay. university. Yeah, got it, got it, got it. So public university. I mean, but that's still that's still pretty uh, remarkable, given that I would say ninety nine percent of universities are not teaching Austrian economics. I mean, I went to a university in the UK, and I studied economics, and I don't think the word Austrian economics was mentioned once ever. And uh, w the other thing I found interesting. Well, well, I wonder, like which we can get into in a little bit, but why, what, how it was, it might've been just a coincidence that, um, you know, specific professors in Czech Republic were there. And so they created uh, uh, an environment where they could teach Austrian economics. Um, but it, it strikes me as if like the Austrian economists are very passionate and 
like strong advocates for Austrian economics, whereas the Keynesian economists and Keynesian, or like my professors of economics, they didn't really like, they don't care about Keynesian economics. It's just the way they were taught that this is the economic theory, it's Keynesian, and so they pass it on. But they're not like strong believers, like this is the way the world should work, etc. And why do you think that is? Why do you think that Austrians seem to be very, very passionate about Austrian economics and the Keynesians are just kind of like regurgitating what they were taught is the way? Yeah, I totally agree that uh, Austrian economists are always quite passionate, even in the academia, which sort of sucks life out of everybody. But uh, the teachers I met and like the professors and the PhD candidates were always quite passionate about uh, Austrian economics and libertarianism, which usually goes hand in hand in hand and uh, yeah this attracted me uh, to studying under these teachers because uh, uh, what what the school basically never did to me is like destroy my passion for finding out the truth which happens uh, to many people after going through the whole schooling process so i'm really glad it didn't happen with me and i'm trying to do the same for my kids but back to your question why that is the case uh, i guess just because it's not a mainstream and you sort of have to find it out for yourself and uh, since it's not mainstream if somebody tries to explain economics to you in this way like in a musician rothbardian way you sort of have to confront it with uh, what uh, you hear everywhere else and what you have been taught up to up to this point because nobody usually is brought up as austrian economics austrian economist and usually uh through elementary and high school and media you are given this picture of uh, as you say keynesian economics uh, so it uh, checks your critical thinking skills and if you pass through you basically become passionate and it's quite similar with bitcoin and bitcoiners uh, because you have this mainstream picture all around you and if you step out of it uh, you just have to spread the message to <laughs> everybody else and yeah uh, like the uh, the personal profile of austrian economists and bitcoiners is quite similar like these are some of the most passionate advocates around and i've seen uh, similar profiles for example in uh, carnivorism like in uh, the special type of diet kind of kind of people uh, the carnivore diet or the keto diet uh, these are also people like who like to spread the message and you can also of course see it with uh, vegans for example uh, if somebody believes in something that's not mainstream uh, they usually do more of their own research, more of their own thinking, and then they try to uh, convince of what they think is true, uh, their friends, their family, and, and such. Yeah, that's a great, that's a fantastic answer. I think like the main thing I took away from that is that because it's not the mainstream view, you're forced like you're you're being told sort of about an alternative potential reality and you have to exercise your critical thinking skills to sort of like 
match that with what you're observing in the world and what else you're told rather than just like zombie absorb something you're told and taking it at face value and then obviously if you discover that this other thing that's perhaps not taught or not so obvious is actually seems to be like either it works or it you can now see the world in a different way and it fits what you've just been told about how things function uh yeah obviously once you believe that's the truth uh you're more likely to passionately advocate for it particularly if it's like a contrarian view because everyone else is is not seeing the same thing as you so there's like there's scope to try you well you want to you know you know you want to have discussions and try and make people see what you're seeing and help them mm -hmm. help them see a, a different but yeah i think the the, the critical thinking the way that, that it forces you to think critically is a key thing um that you don't get if you just absorb what you're being told and taking it at face value. And sadly, you know, the default isn't being ta taught Austrian economics, it's being taught Keynesian economics. I mean, and we can go down like a really deep wormhole of, or a rabbit hole of why it's Keynesian and like all the uh, potentially perverse incentives about why you would be taught that versus Austrian. But um, I think we'll save that for another time. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I do want to know, um, just because I want to go and do some research and also um, just for the listeners. So the prophet, was it the professor you mentioned was his, his name is Shima? Yes, Josef Shima. Uh, Josef. I can probably uh, send this correct spelling <laughs> because it, it has a lot of Czech characters. Oh, okay, cool. It's not like S-H-I-M-A. No, 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 no. <laughs> okay, got it, got it. And then, so let's say, so I have, um, I have human action, it's like, huge thick bible uh mm -hmm. so but w are there any other books that you would recommend to somebody that wants to learn more about austrian economics yeah um economics in one lesson by henry Hazlitt. Uh, that's uh, quite a thin book it uh, it's a short read and very very readable um, and i'm just trying to find out murray rothbard's Murray Rothbard, he was uh, like a pupil of uh, Ludwig von Mises and he sort of rewrote human action into a more readable form and I always, I, I know how it's called in Czech but I just have to find how it's called in English so uh, yeah it's, it's man, economy and state but I guess that's just a part of the book. Yeah, Power and Market. It's Man, Economy and State and Power and Market. Awesome. And sometimes it's published as one book because uh, Rothbard wrote it as, as a single book. Uh, it's also has like 800 pages, but it's much more readable, comes with examples and uh, reads more like a textbook. So okay. uh, I, I like that one, Man, Economy and State and Power and Market. And it also goes deeply into like uh, uh, the market, the incentives of the market and the functioning of the market versus how, uh, how the power structures work and how the state intervenes in the market and uh, what kind of problems it causes. Excellent. And then, so if you could, and I know this might be difficult, so I, I'm asking a lot, but if, if you could summarize what Austrian economics is about in as brief a manner as possible, just to give people who have no idea what it is, have never heard about it before, uh, just a, a, a sort of a, a glimpse into what it's about, how would you describe it? 
yeah that, that's a major task <laughs> uh it doesn't yeah. have to be like all encompass you don't have to you obviously like cover everything but like if you just had to like condense the the one message about it or one thing you wanted to to share about what it's about what, how would sure, you do it sure if you can. Uh, I'll, I'll try yeah. so for me uh, the basic message of austrian school of economics is individual acts and both of these terms are quite important it's individuals who make who do the purposeful action who basically live their life work interact with other people it's individuals it's not companies it's not nation states it's not some bureaucracies because all of these institutions are made up of individuals who have their own motives uh, face some kind of incentives and everybody just tries to make him himself better off and uh, acting like individual acts uh, that refers to like the purposeful behavior that's how Mises defines it acting is a purposeful behavior and th this just means uh, people do things because they believe it will make them or stuff they care about better off in the end and uh, it's quite subjective like how people act uh, is usually based or economically speaking it's based on their subjective preferences so uh, all acting is basically rational if we understand it subjectively it can be irrational uh, if considered uh, with some other uh, information that we have suddenly but from the point of the individual individual whatever he does uh, it's a purposeful behavior because the individual wants and aims to fulfill some of his subjective preferences and we can explain quite a lot this way we can explain the business cycles we can explain why welfare basically doesn't work why like stuff like minimal wage doesn't work uh, why people get addicted for example and why it's hard to break from addiction uh, so this is like uh, the <laughs> most basic explanation of austrian economics individuals act but even in uh, these two terms uh, there's a lot that basically deviates from, for example, Keynesianism and the mainstream school of thought. Uh, and there are other interesting concepts of uh, Austrian school of economics, like time preferences and how it, uh, how it uh, affects interest rates and our behavior uh, in, in time. And of course, for example, Seyfedin Amus works with this concept quite a lot in his Bitcoin standard. Uh, because with time preferences we can explain uh, what's the problem with manipulating interest rates and why uh, having like a neutral monetary standard like Bitcoin why it matters so much so yeah uh, uh, yeah go on then I was gonna say that's a great that the fact that you pretty much summarized it in two words and then uh, explain what you, each of those means uh, is awesome I thought that was a that's a great uh, condensation of what it is and uh, just correct me if I'm wrong but uh, just the, the couple of things that I took away from that um, it sounds like almost like it's psychology a lot of it 
I don't know if that's that's just my impression or whether that's something that you would because if you're analyzing if you're saying that action is subjective per the preference of the person that's essentially like you're psychoanalyzing a person to figure out you know what they care about and then and then derive or understand why they took a certain action and I would almost say maybe there's no like good or bad in that sense because if you just look at like this person did this because they're trying to feed their child you know uh mm -hmm. the, the, yep. you take away an element of more of moral judgment as or, or like objective good bad there's just like uh, action reason sure action incentive right yeah uh i would say uh the difference between economics and psychology is economists just take the subjectivity of acting as a given and economists don't try to explain uh, the motivations like okay. they don't try to uh, understand why somebody is for example subject to uh, addiction uh, they just uh, understand it as uh, something that we have to work with and yeah like it's a reality that happens yeah. but we don't need to analyze why someone is addicted yeah that's right yeah. uh and for example it's a reality that if you raise the minimum minimum wage you will cause unemployment and you are, you don't necessarily go into like uh, the motivations of uh, like of the individuals there you just uh understand that uh some actions cause uh, disruptions in the incentive structures and since people tend to follow their subjective pref subjective preferences uh, some result will basically happen mm. and um, yeah uh, you got a good point about economics not necessarily uh, saying anything about morality or ethics ethics and uh, if you go back to, for example, Adam Smith and uh, like these 18th century economists, they used to be moral philosophers as well. Like uh, Adam Smith wrote uh, wrote uh, the Wealth of Nations, mm -hmm. but he wrote uh, a treatise on morality as well. And we can see uh, the similar with Mises or Rothbard, where Mises wrote uh, treatise on economics and besides that he wrote uh, like a political philosophy treatise like liber liberalism or socialism and his other works and Murray Rothbard wrote uh, the ethics of liberty uh, in which he or uh, some people tend to criticize economics for being uh, like value free where uh, you or we would like to sort of take away the welfare from the people and we have a cold heart or something but uh, uh, that's just the nature of economics like economics should be value free you have these like basic understandings of human nature of the subjectivity of preferences of uh, uh, individual methodology like individuals acts uh, and you don't go into like uh, uh, whether something is good or bad you just analyze uh, the causes and the effects uh, but you can do the analysis of morality or ethics uh, if you like uh, 
step out of uh, the economist's shoes and step into like philosopher's sh uh, shoes like uh, Murray Rothbard does in his Ethics of Liberty. And of course, uh, when Murray wrote about uh, ethics, he uh, like uses the apparatus of like economics, of Austrian economics, and uh, just uh, arrives at similar conclusions as the economist does that uh, not only is it more efficient to be free to not have the state intervene into uh, the market but it's even just moral uh, and more aligned with like civility of mankind uh, to do so cool awesome awesome all right that's a uh, that's a great uh, bit on austrian economics and and a little bit on libertarianism um, so thank you for that. And I will check out that book that you mentioned, the um, economics in one lesson, right? Yeah, that yeah, sounds, that's that right. sounds like yeah. a good one. And I think those, those Rothbard ones, uh, perhaps maybe a good reading before I jump into human action at, as a, as a last one or more advanced yeah, book, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, um, uh, I have never read human action page, like cover to cover. Uh, I have it on my shelf as a sort of referential book and I'll always just check out what Mises writes on the nature of like price regulation and such. It's a great book for that. Nice, like just referencing whenever you need to, a specific knowledge yeah. on, a, on a given topic. Fantastic. All right. Um, let's jump into uh, Bitcoin then. So, uh, I, so I, I mentioned, well, before we started recording, I mentioned that I watched uh, your appearance on the Bit Refill podcast, and you talked a little bit about how you got into Bitcoin, uh, then into crypto, and then back into Bitcoin. Now, um, the the area I'm really interested in is why why you went to crypto, and then why you jumped back to Bitcoin after that. Uh, if If telling the story of how you got into Bitcoin helps um us to understand or for you to explain the the jump to crypto and back uh then feel free to tell it again uh but otherwise i i, I understand it was like an and you listened to andres antonopoulos uh give a yep. talk or something and that got you hooked on you'd heard of bitcoin before though but like an andres antonopoulos um talk in 2016 really got you going down the rabbit hole but the bit i really want to focus on that i think is really important and i personally i like i get annoyed that this happens is that i feel like the 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 mainstream view or the mainstream understanding is that bitcoin and crypto are the same thing and they're almost like you can use those two terms interchangeably like you'll often say get people asking you about you know so someone who doesn't understand uh cryptocurrencies or Bitcoin, they but they just want to invest and make some money. So they ask you about Bitcoin and then you tell them about specifically you're talking about Bitcoin and then they come back to you and they say, oh, I bought some Doge thinking yep. it's just like just like Bitcoin, but a different name or, you know, just thinking like it's all companies, they're all different stocks and you just buy either Microsoft or Google. It's kind of the same thing, but it's just a different company. So I, I want to try and help people understand the difference between crypto and bitcoin and i wonder if your journey into crypto and then back to bitcoin uh is a way to sort of illustrate that difference mm -hmm. well uh it was just pure gambling mentality and speculation and i just wanted to not necessarily make more bitcoin but just make more money 
Mm-hmm. Uh, f- I'm perfectly willing to admit I was, uh, I didn't understand Bitcoin or even money itself properly back then, like in 2015 to maybe 2017, when I was still into shit coins. Uh, and uh, how I got back into Bitcoin only uh, was quite a long journey and quite painful one because I lost uh, quite a lot of Bitcoin in the process uh, on shitcoins, of course, and even on like leverage trading and such. Uh, so I'm completely uh, understanding when people do it today. Uh, but that said, uh, I believe the resources right now for newcomers are of much higher quality, uh, more ubiquitous, like uh, there's much more of them, more understandable, more straightforward. Uh, we have people like Michael Saylor, like Seyfedean, Breedlove, Marty Band, who are able to explain the nature of money and the nature of Bitcoin versus crypto in a very approachable terms. Back then, yeah, there was Andreas, but Andreas started to shitcoin as well. So I sort of followed him there <laughs> uh, and I paid a huge price for that. Uh, but I'm quite glad I went through this journey because uh, as I did so, I uh, f- like I had a skin in the game all the way. Like when I was uh, talking about shitcoins to people, I truly believed it, I truly held it. Uh, when I started to write a book about why Bitcoin only matters and started to do some lectures and uh, run a podcast about Bitcoin only, I switched back and lot, lost, uh, lost a lot of potential Bitcoin in the process. But good for me, I did so uh, when I did because uh, I could lose it all if I waited for for a longer time. So uh, I'm not really sure if there's like a clear cut argument for newcomers who have no conception of how economy works, uh, what is economics, how money works, and just uh, go straight for Bitcoin because they are going to be lured by this like fiat mindset. They can make more short term dollars uh, on some shitcoin, on some NFT, and it can work uh, work out for them in a short while, but they are going to uh, lose the most precious thing uh, in the long run, like sets, as, as many Bitcoin as, as they could have. Because if they focus just on having the Bitcoin, uh, the dollar gains, they totally miss like what it's all about. And it's all about having as many Bitcoin as possible, like from the personal financial perspective. So uh, I believe uh, the educational level is getting much higher as we go by. Uh, And the past bear market, like since 2018 till 2020, uh, played a huge role in that, like the basically all the major podcasts started to to record uh, in this time. Uh, all the seminal books and works like VJ's uh, bullish case for Bitcoin, like Seyfedean, 
like layered money uh, all of this started to come out only in this bear market in the past bear market and now when newcomers come around they have this at their fingertips and uh, they don't necessarily have to make the same mistakes as I and many other did because it's much more clearly explained even in like infographics form there are several uh, Twitter accounts that do like uh, Bitcoin infographics and this communicates the message quite strongly yeah I completely agree that the level so I I've I owned Bitcoin for the first time in 2019, but purely I, I'd heard of it in 2016 or 17, probably before, but 2017 is when I started paying attention. But I was like, I was the blockchain, not Bitcoin guy. And it's a tulip mania bubble. And then when the 2017 market ended, I was like, oh, I'm vindicated. I was right, but I kept an eye on it. And when it went back to 10K, I was like, okay, there must be something here that I'm not getting because, you know, I'm not right. It's gone back up to it's gone back up to 10k yeah. so um, yeah I, I, that's I, was when never, I bought some yeah. I, I was never like a blockchain guy I always uh, like understood this is bullshit and Andras also always uh, mentioned that uh, blockchain is bullshit I was more into uh, the idea that we could have multiple currencies and that uh, Bitcoin doesn't scare, scale very well and Litecoin basically helps out in this regard uh, and like coins that are basically copies of Bitcoin could be like synergi synergic with Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. uh, and then Lightning Network started to develop uh, after 2018. So uh, this basically destroyed this narrative. And since like 2019, I uh, started to suspect something is wrong with the multi-coin vision. <laughs> and uh, I basically convinced myself finally in 2020 when I started to write my own book and uh, like uh, this book uh, it's called like Bitcoin the separation of money and state but it came out only in, in Czech it's, it's published by Brains uh, and this book uh, served uh, mostly to convince myself than to convince anybody else because uh, after I came out of the process I just saw nothing really makes sense but Bitcoin and not just in the sense of like the crypto industry but like the libertarian strategy for uh, bringing more liberty to this world nothing makes more sense than Bitcoin this is what I uh, concluded from the process of writing this book do you think that part of that is the fact that like Bitcoin is is uh, truly decentralized and immutable and not there isn't like the ability for one person or like you know a central entity to to take full control of it like some other like some other cryptocurrencies yeah that's uh, a good definition of what bitcoin basically is uh, it doesn't matter like uh, how bitcoin works on a technical level what matters is uh, like why we should care and why uh, like why we should care is because it's immutable and there is no no one in charge and it's dynamic it relies on the incentives not on some like uh, statues and laws so yeah this is why bitcoin matters and like since i'm a non-technical guy 
I always uh, try to understand try to understand why any of this matters, why Bitcoin and the crypto should actually matter for me and for uh, for mankind. And uh, the only conclusion I was able to get at is uh, that only Bitcoin matters because it's really quite different from what we had in the history and what we have right now with uh, like fiat currencies or altcoins because no one is in charge and it's basically anti-fragile because it can just readjust itself through its users and through their incentives and through their subjective preferences which are of course to uh, preserve their purchasing value and and such yeah yeah i mean i think you make some excellent points earlier when we started when you started on on um this explaining to us or telling us your story uh, and and the the sort of why people get into shit coins and why newcomers may not understand bitcoin the profoundity of bitcoin right away and i think one of the key things as you said is like if you don't understand what money is and if you don't know like the ins and outs of fiat of what a fiat currency is and a little bit how central banking works you know i can see how you're just trying to make more dollars right so you go for the one that you think is gonna go up the most in fiat whereas i think bitcoiners are already seeing the end game with fiat is that all fiat currencies inflate to infinity and collapse over a, a, or most of them over a long enough time frame and so yep. We don't want to short term get that we have low time preference. We don't want the the gains in fiat. We think of everything in uh, in Bitcoin terms. We use Bitcoin as our unit of account, and we under we're we're betting on a future where the best money wins, uh, because we might understand from history that that can be the case. Uh, whereas people just think like, oh, I want more dollars, so I I'm rich if I have more dollars, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, like one of the defining characteristics of bitcoiners is probably they have no faith in fiat currencies anymore and uh, yeah like uh, i don't necessarily have to buy any more bitcoin because uh, i won't get like uh, percentage wise i won't get as much uh, uh, <laughs> like it doesn't make any more uh, it doesn't matter anymore like in my net worth if i buy any more Bitcoin with my earnings but what I'm doing when I'm uh, like invoicing in Bitcoin and earning sets through my sales and such and buying Bitcoin occasionally as well is I'm just preserving my purchasing power uh, when I exchange my time for uh, for some money I want that time to be uh, as valuable as possible as long as possible and fiat currencies just don't uh, preserve that purchasing power so uh, it doesn't matter if i have like x amount of bitcoin and now i buy like uh, 0.1 percent each month because it seems like a tiny amount but what matters is uh, valuing myself and my work and uh, preserving that value yeah and uh, yeah absolutely i think one of the other one of the other fallacies i that you know because um i think you mentioned uh, i don't know if you just mentioned about like what your belief of to why other other cryptocurrencies would coexist you believed in like a multi cryptocurrency future 
uh, because you thought there would be just other uses or, the, or there would be synergies between Bitcoin and other coins because of scaling issues or whatever it is. What, one of the other things I find, and I don't know, um, I'm curious to get your take on it. I think there is also, um, I don't know if it's a fallacy or a, a, a whatever whatever psychological term you might want to want to use, but there's people are trying to chase something different because they think they're too late for Bitcoin and they want to find the one that's going to be the next Bitcoin so they can make the gains yeah. that they would have made if they have gotten into Bitcoin before, which is entirely missing the point of Bitcoin in the first place. You know, because again, it's just still thinking about making more dollars, but there's this fallacy that's like, and then they also become tribal about the one they pick. So it's like almost like supporting a foot. I, sometimes I think about it like we're all supporting different sports teams. And then we, you know, it's like loyalty to the team is almost more important than the fundamentals of that particular project and whether it's going to work or not or have utility in the market. Uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, <laughs> uh, once again, I completely agree and uh, can sympathize because I went through that with my uh, heavy shitcoin bags. And uh, it's quite hard to agree you made some mistake, uh, which you are not basically, uh, which you are, you will not be able to come back from uh, unscathed. Uh, because, for example, if you if you bought the top of some shit coins and it's now minus 80%, uh, that's the, just the nature of human psychology. You are going to double down and you don't want to hear the truth because it's too painful for you to admit you've been so wrong. Uh, and yeah, it's mostly basically the same kind of psychological pattern as when somebody is addicted to some drugs or alcohol and they just don't want to admit uh, they are doing something wrong to themselves because it's too painful to uh, face yourself and to admit uh, you can be so wrong on such a profound level. So uh, uh, like the most successful investors all around, not just, uh, not just pertaining to Bitcoin, learn to step away from their emotions and to just uh, take the truth at face value and to just uh, basically like a grok it, like understand it on a fundamental level, even if uh, even if it uh, destroys some of your biases, even if it makes you uh, feel uh, like like stupid, right? And this is why I said uh, it's not that easy for newcomers not to be lured by shitcoins. Because if you uh, drive on this emotional level and you uh, are uh, bombarded by the sleek marketing of shitcoins uh, and you listen to uh, people you respect highly like Elon Musk and everybody uh, tells you like shitcoins are cool and you should go for NFTs and uh, these Bitcoin maxi guys are just uh, just don't want to get you don't want you to get rich and such. This all aims at your emotions, and in order to understand Bitcoin, it's the quite similar like libertarianism, libertarianism versus socialism. Uh, Bitcoiners and libertarians usually aim for the rational side of people. 
uh, whereas socialists and shitcoiners usually aim <laughs> for uh, like the emotional side and uh, like one's uh, self-perception and such. Uh, but once again, I believe this is changing a bit with Michael Saylor, with uh, what's happening in El Salvador. These are suddenly like hap uh, events and developments that are cool. Like it seems cool. And Jack Myers is a very cool kid. When he explains Bitcoin, he can be very emotional as we've seen uh, in Miami. So this is changing a bit. It's not just like nerds and Austrian economics, economists and libertarians trying to explain why Bitcoin matters on a rational level, but we have like also a cool, so even sort of like a propaganda, like Lucio Poletti, if you know Lucio Poletti, the Bitcoin artist, he basically does like a Bitcoin propaganda. And that's quite powerful and we definitely need that. Yeah, but uh, I probably veered off the the, the question. <laughs> I don't even know what. No, that's was. okay. That's okay. Um, uh, but so, what I yeah, I think do, what I was going to ask you about that is because we're saying like, uh, you know, uh, the other cryptocurrencies they appeal to this emotional side of you, and then, but I I, I do feel like a lot of Bitcoiners are also very emotional about Bitcoin. They're not just like. Although I know, I, I would agree that most in general, like the stereotypical Bitcoin maxi or like Bitcoin maximalist um, would have spent a lot of time understanding a lot of the, the things that you need to, to be as convicted as you are in Bitcoin from a more rational uh, mm -hmm. level of understanding money, you know, incentives, economics, whereas uh, a, a crypto person who's going for doge is more emotional like they just love doge or they love the community or some like I emotional aspect but i wonder like could is there room that we're do bitcoiners leave any room for themselves to be wrong and i know it's hard because i'm now lumping everyone in the same basket as yeah, bitcoiners yeah, but uh, maybe yeah. i can ask you like do you leave any room for you to be wrong about Bitcoin. I ask myself this all the time. Should I have, you know, uh, another investment or should I be hedging a little bit in case like Ethereum does actually become mm -hmm. better than Bitcoin or something? I, I don't believe that I'm, I'm not hedge. I'm not hedging myself with shit coins, but I do ask myself that constantly just to double check that I that to not be like just 100% convinced without checking. Yeah, yeah. That's a great question, and uh, I can only answer from my point of view, of course. Yeah. So uh, since I've been, I've been wrong on the nature of money basically two times in my life. First was uh, like gold and silver, when I was uh, like a gold and silver bug. That was like during my school days when I studied Austrian economics, and. Uh, Mario Rothbard always goes on about how we should uh, return to the gold standard and many other Austrian economics, economists as well. So uh, I strongly believed that uh, we are going back to gold standard and I should basically hedge my fiat with gold and silver coins. That was wrong, obviously. Um, then the second time I, I was wrong was with shit coins and with the multi-coin nature of like future monetary system. So uh, I believe 
I like to believe I am more skeptical minded now and more uh, critical minded uh, and I am quite willing to discuss Bitcoin shortcomings with people who understand these shortcomings and uh, not just some uh, straw men. For example, on uh, one of my recent podcasts, I had uh, like one of the best uh, Bitcoin developers I know. He's a Slovakian guy. He actually came up with the idea for turbo channels. Uh, yeah, so he's quite proficient. And we discussed for about an hour, like what could go wrong with Bitcoin. And one uh, or let me let me uh, mention several several things mm -hmm. that could go wrong with Bitcoin. Uh, first is uh, there's basically a bug overflow pro problem in Bitcoin, and we need a hard fork bit before 2108. That's uh, that's a nice fact that not that many people are aware of. But that's that's a problem. We need a hard fork in Bitcoin. And is that for you said it for a sorry to interrupt you for a bug overflow issue? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I never. Yeah, because I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you can you can find it uh, yeah. if you Google like uh, twenty one oh eight uh, bug overflow Bitcoin. It's been covered quite extensively, but uh, not not much attention to that. Uh, another issue is of course the security budget, and as uh, the Bitcoin subsidy tapers, uh, will we have uh, sufficient fees? Uh, and like the past year has been quite alarming from this regard because uh, like the fees are negligible. I can still send one set per byte transaction. I'm happy to do so, of course, on a personal level, but I'm quite worried about like uh, having a sufficient uh, security budget uh, as we have uh, like two or more three Bitcoin halvings. Can, can, uh, sorry, can I interrupt you just to... Um just to elaborate on that point, because I think this is like potentially uh, what I'm about to say is like uh, potentially a taboo subject. That's not a, not many Bitcoin, you know, it'll be considered sacrilege if it's suggested as a potential because I, I agree that this is a I'm not saying it's an, definitely an issue, but it's definitely something to keep and to consider. Whereas I think like Bitcoin's issuance schedule, the fact that it's fixed and it's predictable in the future forever and that it's only going to be 21 million coins is like we it's one of the biggest selling points and of Bitcoin. So uh, um, people tiptoe or just avoid this uh, security fees issue. I, I personally believe that there is a chance and there is, I'm not saying it's de the right choice, but there is a case to be made for potentially some adjustment in the issuance to fix this problem. That's the only way I can think about it, unless there's like, we are then manipulating fees to be higher, uh, mm -hmm. which again, like, you know, it'd be like, uh, um, we would be messing with the market rather than yep. leaving it to be a free market. So I don't know, how, how do you see that? Yeah, I believe uh, within like two or three halvings, we will see proposals for change to the issuance schedule and maybe to have like a perpetual issuance. Uh, but uh, it's never going to happen in Bitcoin. Like uh, we couldn't raise the block size limit in 2017 or like I was not in favor, but uh, 
those who wanted to raise this limit like uh, New York agreement and Segwit2x uh, they weren't able to push this through and only created another shitcoin in the form of Bcash uh, and that was much uh, less uh, critical to what Bitcoin is than the 21 million uh, limit. So even though these proposals are going to be proposed, it's not going to happen. And the only thing that's going to happen is another shitcoin will be created. Uh, if Bitcoin is unable to uh, uh, de uh, to uh, generate a sufficient security budget, it will first die, then it will readjust its uh, like monetary policy. That's what I believe. You you think so? Because where where my mind went is I understand that like as long as it's be it's uh, uh, observed to be working well enough, like it's easy. I think it's easier when it's the top market cap and it's the most well known coin and it's got these other special qualities. But if the if the security issue became like critical to the point where the the protocol isn't functioning properly or like it's being attacked then surely the the incentives would say you have to do something to change it like i, I yeah. whilst it's working it makes sense right don't f if it ain't broke don't fix it but i do believe that that stance might change because why wouldn't you defend something when it's clearly just not working or broken anymore i know ahead of time it's hard to say oh it's gonna break you know, in five years, we should act now. I think it's something catastrophic might happen and then it changes. Yeah. Or and yeah. like you say, that might be a death. Yeah. Uh, like what I believe is much more uh, probably that that would happen in such a case is uh, like the protocol subsidy would be uh, would be supplemented by like an outright subsidy of uh, companies that uh, work in Bitcoin, that uh, like MicroStrategy, for example, and they like companies like these would simply uh, send out transactions with uh, enormous fees, like uh, like one dollar transaction with ten thousand dollar fee, just to subsidize uh, the miners. Mm. That's like the most straightforward straightforward thing that could happen without alternating uh, the monetary policy without uh, like setting the precedent for making uh, such a change that would basically destroy bitcoin uh, so you could make an argument though that then um the the network is reliant has become more centralized because it's reliant on a certain action by a certain group of people even though it's a voluntary action uh, to yep. sustain the network and they could use that leverage to make changes that the nodes don't agree with they say well you don't agree with this then we're not doing this anymore and then the network gets attacked um right that, yeah. that would be i guess one of the one of the downsides although i understand that's that's definitely a possibility that like yeah seeing some i guess grassroots uh sort of almost donation style but i mean you don't even have to think of it as a donation because if you're benefiting from bitcoin and it requires something to remain usable and secure it shouldn't be uh, an issue that you have to spend some you know the expectation that it should be like cost you nothing and be this amazing tool like maybe it, maybe there's in 50 75 years we're all running a mini nuclear reactor at home for our electricity and we can all run a miner uh, at very low cost and the network is secure and you can make you know a, a, a tiny fraction of fees uh and 
and it's all good. I don't know. That could be a future. Yep. I, yep. I hope we have nuclear react, like mini re nuclear reactors at home that power our homes and we don't rely on the grid anymore, right? Yeah, yeah I hope so as yeah. well. I'm a big subscriber to Marty Band's view on like uh, energy uh, sector and uh, who's, yeah, yeah. So yeah. Uh, you could even uh, say that maybe Bitcoin will incentivize the creation of that sort of. Uh, you know, you might get like a, a Elon Musk of Bitcoin of energy because he's a Bitcoiner. He wants to. He realizes there's this is an issue, and that like sovereign energy production that's cheap and easy to do at home, like a mini nuclear reactor. I don't know how easy that is, and technically, <laughs> right? But you could like, yep. you know, we didn't think that we could build reusable rockets, and then Elon Musk in a decade does it. So, uh, you know, you could see a similar thing happen, and then f it fixes Bitcoin without fixing the touching the protocol itself yeah yeah but uh, i i don't think we can we have to uh, adjust the protocol or rely on like the charity of uh, the biggest stakeholders mm. i believe what's uh, eventually going to happen is uh, these like second and third layers on top of bitcoin will take off like big time and uh, since we will have this like economic aggregation of our transactions it won't be a problem to pay like 100 dollar or 1000 dollar fees on the base layer and it will be sufficiently filled with transactions so that uh, this kind of fee market develops and back to economics uh, this is sometimes called and bitcoiners cite it often uh, the jevons paradox where if uh, some kind of good or commodity uh, becomes more efficient it's in higher demand as a result because you can do more stuff with it and uh, the block space is the commodity we are talking about and we need to pay for this block space and we are worried about uh, not enough people paying not enough money for this commodity but uh, it's going to happen because we will have uh, these further layers on top of bitcoin which will greatly greatly expand the possibilities uh, we can actually do with this block space mm. do you think um and by the way i'm just like thinking out loud here so i could be completely off but do you think like having central entities on top of bitcoin that that are just you know like when you use chivo wallet if somebody is sending Bitcoin from one Chivo wallet to another Chivo wallet, it's actually potentially just a database entry change rather than an on-chain transaction. Could the same be said for like a Coinbase buy where the coins are already held by another a Coinbase seller and it's a Coinbase buyer and they're staying in Coinbase custody? Do you think that's also something where they don't move the the coins on chain? They just change the spreadsheet and Coinbase and, and assign the coins to the new user. And it's only if they withdraw away from Coinbase that there's an on-chain transaction. So there might be a lot of like actual Bitcoin transactions, but not actually happening on chain. Yeah, yeah. Uh, these kind of uh, institutions act like Bitcoin banks where uh, all the transactions are happening just on the internal ledger and nothing's happening. Uh, uh, on Bitcoin uh, and like there are strong uh, security and privacy trade-offs with doing this and uh, half finish idea in like 2010 or 11 was that we will need these kind of Bitcoin banks like these exchanges where we just readjust the internal ledgers uh, because Bitcoin itself won't scale 
And luckily enough, uh, Taj Drija and Joseph Poon came up with the Lightning Network. And we don't need these institutions. Like, uh, Lightning Network does what these like Bitcoin banks uh, should be doing, but wi without uh, such strong privacy and security trade-offs. Yeah, and, and I guess the Lightning Network, at s if a centralized uh, entity or several centralized entities become uh, the majority of transactions, they might interact with the chain rarely to never. Whereas like Lightning, you're always opening, closing channels. So you are having some interactions with the with with the base chain what i was gonna say actually like just a, a thought i had is like i guess the bit the 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 incentive structure and the economics of the bitcoin blockchain are uh designed f with bitcoin with bitcoin being a peer-to-peer -peer, uh money so if you're no longer like acting peer-to-peer -peer, as in you're acting like peer to central entity that sits on top of bitcoin to another peer and never touching the the base layer then you're kind of breaking the protocol in a way uh, because that's not how it was designed to be used well uh, it's totally permissionless so everybody can use it in a no, way yeah. they seem fit but uh, the, like people should realize if they have their Bitcoin lying on Coinbase uh, they don't get the benefits from Bitcoin they don't yeah. like they may get some price exposure uh, but who knows, because if uh, they keep it on there for several years, they might lose it altogether or it might get uh, taxed into oblivion. Or so 6102. Yeah, get, yeah, yeah, or yeah. get confiscated, that's Agreed. right. Agreed. So, uh, like, it's not your Bitcoin <laughs> yeah. if you I, I, hold it I, on an exchange. Honestly, if I was going to, like, hammer away one of those points, it would be that you're if if you're doing that you're not getting the best things that bitcoin has to offer you're leaving mm -hmm. a lot of value of bitcoin on the table uh basically just for you're there for fiat gains which could disappear uh because you're not using bitcoin how it's how well how it's uh i guess how you can get the most value out of using it which is like storing it by yourself holding your own keys uh, and, and just trying to be as self-sovereign and as private as possible, especially because it's a semi-adversarial uh, money at the moment. So I, I saw someone um, tweet that we might be entering the like, you know, first they ignore you and then they laughed at you. And now there's maybe we might be entering the they fight you stage. Uh, and yeah. you have to be prepared for the fight. You can't, yeah, you can't assume it's not going to happen. And it's just going to be like a rosy path to hyper Bitcoinization. I think, uh, holding your own keys is one of the best preparations to, uh, to the, they fight you stage because you have the leverage. They can't take it from you. Whereas if you're storing it on Coinbase is Coinbase is going to do whatever the government tells them. They don't, they, you know, it's, it, they've made it clear. They don't really care about Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> like uh, one of my pet conspiracy theories is uh, Brian Armstrong becoming uh, the secret secretary of finance <laughs> for the US. <laughs> Love it. In exchange for <laughs> handing over the keys to uh, users' Bitcoin. And I mean, imagine how, how many Bitcoin does uh, Coinbase hold? It's like one million. I I don't know, but it must be yeah, it must be a lot. 
you know, they apparently, well, you know, this is all speculation, but I know Michael Saylor, MicroStrategy used Coinbase to buy, to acquire their Bitcoin. And we hmm. know from the last time Michael Saylor mentioned it, it could have changed since then that they are using a custodian. So, and, and Coinbase has a separate custodial entity for like, institutional grade custodial entity. Uh, so he could, they, his coins could be on there. Who knows? Uh, yeah, but yeah, that's a yeah. hundred, that's 130,000 coins, just one person. So I imagine Coinbase probably has at least a million coins. Yeah. It used to be million in like January, 2020 before Michael Saylor started to acquire, uh, but like, yeah, like people should realize, um, the state doesn't, uh, play fair. And if there's a crisis of sufficient level, anything could happen, literally anything. And we have seen this like in 1933 with the confiscations of, uh, of uh, uh, like uh, US citizens gold. And we have seen this uh, in the past two years with the COVID hysteria where there's no rule of law anymore. Uh, the government just adjust uh, <laughs> like in, in Czech Republic it's quite uh, it's quite humorous actually because uh, uh, time and time again a lot of the uh, emergency like orders were found to be unconstitu unconstitutional or against like the regular law and the answer was always but it's a crisis it was necessary and we will prepare the correct clause right now and the constitutional court uh, gives them like seven days to do so so uh, there's actually not such a separation of powers because the constitutional court uh, plays with the government if they find out they haven't uh, been doing stuff legally they give them uh, enough time to repair that and like citizens who were fined for being outside after 9 p.m. when there was curfew, they still were fined and like nobody gave the money back. Yeah. So there is no rule of law <laughs> in <laughs> like, and Czech Republic is quite advanced democracy, you know, like for 30 years now. Uh, and of course, I'm not even mentioning like what's happening in Australia, Austria and such. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's pretty similar uh, flavor everywhere in the world. So it's not like we can say, oh, it's an, it's an individual failure of this particular country. It seems to be like, <laughs> what is it? Mass, mass hysteria. What's the, like what everyone was tweeting recently? Mass uh, hysteria. Mass psychosis. formation. Psychosis. Mass formation. Yeah, I mean, you made a good point. Like, you know, they say, oh, it's an emergency. So I, I watched, uh, I, I was watching, somebody had the news on and there was a, you know, reporters were asking about what just the general public walking on the street, what they thought about vaccine mandates. And everyone was pretty much like, you know, I don't think they're good, but it's an emergency. So I, it's okay. So I think yeah. most people like if they, if, if they weren't sold this like, oh, it's a very dangerous disease and it's a pandemic, it's an emergency and we have to take extraordinary measures, nobody would be for these things. So if you if, if you could just take away the sense of this, the fear, I guess, right? Because it's a fear. If you took away the fear from people, then they would be able to think more rationally or at least like see some of the big cons of trying to mandate this sort of stuff. And like, I, um, one thing I was going to ask you, I know we scheduled 10 to 1130 
and there's so many wormholes we could go down and i really want to talk to you about treasure as well i mean all of this stuff is really interesting i'm sure we could talk for like three hours but i want to make sure that you don't have anything scheduled or, or if you can let me know if you when you have a hard stop just so i can also make sure we talk about treasure uh i don't have anything scheduled so okay i'm fine yeah cool. i enjoyed the discussion yeah yeah me too i i mean yesterday i spoke to my um uh, my best friend, I, he, I, I moved recently, so my best friend is still like a, uh, the country where I used to live. And we hadn't caught up in a while. And I had like, we had a three hour rant about Bitcoin and like, you know, what's going on with governments. Cause uh, so I used to live in Hong Kong and Hong Kong has like crazy, crazy restrictions. Uh, if you, they ban travel from different countries. Even if you're a Hong Kong citizen or resident, if you're in a country that they decide you can't come back from, you can't go back from that country. You have no mm -hmm. right to re-enter your own country. Uh, or if you do, you have to spend 21 days in quarantine in a hotel mm. that you have to pay for yourself. There's mm. all sorts of yeah, close contact stuff where you get sent to quarantine. If you're like had dinner with someone who tests positive within the next three weeks, you get sent to, to a government quarantine. There's just crazy, crazy shit. So I'm very much like, I, I don't think I was super skeptical and, and, um, of of like authority and government i think i was sort of like oh it's the best system we have and blah 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 but now like since bitcoin i am very very leaning towards like anarchism libertarianism i think i there has to be some tr you know i don't think society and humans function without some level of trusting each other because imagine you know i can't build my own computers and do everything myself and like be a plumber and a carpenter and a house builder and everything so we have to trust each other to a certain level but i think the incentives of the state are such that they can only ever grow bigger they cannot reduce down to a size that would be optimal let's call it yeah yeah anarchism isn't solipsism like uh Anarchists don't think, uh, like, first, anarchists don't think uh, people are, like, all good. And there are bad people around, of course. And anarchists, like anarcho-capitalists, uh, of course, believe in the division of labor and uh, cooperation. And, like, where, uh, like, statists and anarchists uh, differ is in their understanding of the incentive structures of the state and of uh, the society that isn't uh, intervened in by the state. Mm. Uh, and there are many examples like in daily life where you don't actually cooperate with people uh, or don't harm any people just because you could be jailed or just because there's a cop uh, around the corner because you can actually get away with many things even like in countries like united states or britain you can get away with many things but you are not going to do these things um, usually because from the long-term perspective uh, it's more advantageous to cooperate and not to be a shitty person and a uh, big part of that is of course uh, moral morality and ethics and i I'm not a religious person, but I sort of agree with uh, like religious people that there's a huge part missing there, that uh, ethics and morality don't uh, get taught today. And uh, a lot of parents have their uh, moral values quite, uh, quite uh, screwed up. So, uh, and you know, 
it sort of gets back to Bitcoin <laughs> because yeah. I believe Bitcoin actually made me a more moral and ethical person. And when I found out uh, shitcoins are basically scams, I just needed to communicate that like in my book, in my writings, in my speeches, uh, because uh, I just believe it's my like moral imperative to do so and to warn people from doing the same mistakes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I see loads of parallels. Um, you know, you said uh, shit coins are scams, uh, which is a great phrase. Uh, but I see lots of, I, so I used to work in real estate and I also like started listening to the Tim Ferriss podcast in 2015. And of course he's like, at the time he's like heavily into venture capital investing and investing in startups and like Uber and Airbnb and blah, 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 were like all the cool things. Right. And then I, I saw lots of startups trying to like disrupt the real estate industry and having being, you know, working in real estate, I knew that everything they were saying about what they were going to build is just complete bullshit. It was like, you know, a banker who had a terrible time finding an apartment and then thought he could do a better job and fix the industry. So he became, he's going to start the Airbnb for long-term rentals or the Uber for real estate agents or whatever. And it's always <laughs> like, you haven't worked in real estate. You have no idea how it works. And so I, I was very attuned to, uh, to marketing promises like you can have really slick, uh, this is what I'm going to deliver in the future, but you know, fund my company now or use me now, even though I can't do those things. It's mostly fund me, right? It's mostly like venture, give me venture capital so I can build this theory that I, that, that, that I have. And I, you know, knowing what I know, I knew that it was never going to work. So when uh -huh. I got into Bitcoin, I liked this number one, the simplicity of it is once, you know, Okay, it's not, it's not at first hand, like Michael Saylor described it as a monetary network and like compared it to like, I guess like, you know, being able to own a piece of the internet or, uh, you know, Facebook is a social network, Apple is a mobile network and you know, Bitcoin is a money network. And I knew obviously Apple, Facebook and, and such companies whilst being centralized are very big. They have lots of customers and there's just a lot of usage. So I saw the parallel there with Bitcoin. That's what dragged me into it. And then when like I start looking at, ethereum or Polkadot, and it's like bridging across different blockchains and sharding and blah 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 i'm like i don't understand any of this shit like i i, I want to keep bitcoin sounds good because it's simple 21 million i get the money thing the hard mm -hmm. money i i did my thesis on silver at university so i owned some silver for a bit it was a terrible investment but i learned about hard money a little bit i i'd completely forgotten about it by the time i got into bitcoin but uh, it helped once i refreshed um so I like the simplicity and I actually, um, I own shit coins for a little bit, but I just bought them as like a basket of, because uh, I got orange pilled by a Michael Saylor on Raul Pal Real Vision video. Uh, so, and I, Raul Pal's a good communicator and stuff. So he, and at the time he's like shilling Bitcoin as like the next huge, it was before he went 95 Ethereum and five Bitcoin, whatever. Uh, so uh, he was like, you know, he had 20% as a basket. He like treated it as a VC investment and it's a 20% of a basket of all different shit coins. He doesn't care about which ones he just, just in case, you know, some of them go up. So I had that for like three weeks and then I was like, I can't keep track of like 19 different prices every day and stuff. So I just sold them all again <laughs> and went just back to yeah. Bitcoin. And I held yeah. a little bit of Ethereum for a little while longer, but only because I was waiting for the right time to flip it back. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. 
but I, I, uh, I I'm, not, I'm not so uh, sorry. What, what, sorry what I was trying to say is I'm not a, you know like I, I I can't relate but well I understand that this is a, a fact but I can't relate to the getting attractive attracted by the marketing of like it the promises that some other crypto is better faster stronger is going to do something if it's not doing it now uh, I'm skeptical yeah yeah I just wanted to say uh, I used to hold ethereum until uh, the DAO hack and until the fork uh, and yeah this is where, where I saw it's not very much different from for example the Liberty Reserve or eGold like the Bitcoin pre predecessors that were centralized uh, but then like uh, back to like my shitcoin journey uh, I wasn't ever seduced with like ICOs or like sleek marketing type of coins but more with like stuff like monero and uh, litecoin and these like not pre-mined um, not really marketing heavy seemed to have like solid tech uh, development and such uh, especially monero uh, but in the end i found out uh, bitcoin is very uh, very much uh, going to stand on its own feet and we don't need these basically and uh, like there there's this concept of shelling point like uh, one uh, there's one standard for communication protocols like uh, we've got lingua franca uh, like it used to be french spanish latin now it's mm. english we've got uh, like qwerty keyboards we've got usb ports uh, and such and we've got the same for money it used to be gold and silver uh, now it's us dollars and it's going to be bitcoin and doesn't doesn't make sense that we should have we should go to this uh, multi-currency future because bitcoin has everything it needs and bitcoin is going to bitcoin is evolving like that's what what uh, most shitcoiners are not willing to admit that bitcoin evolves um, at a quite a fast pace if you consider that it's necessarily uh, conservative but even though it's conservative it made huge developments over the past 13 years yeah i, I think i'd like to highlight actually you wrote a piece uh, my listeners won't know this yet because i haven't actually like made it public but i'm i'm now the managing director of btc times uh, and you wrote that piece of uh, why keeping up uh, with bitcoin is a full-time job and you did an excellent um, job at articulating and showing how much development there is in Bitcoin and, and sort of like negating this idea that Bitcoin is old, slow, no one wants to change it, etc. I think that uh, I would say that changes made to Bitcoin are well-reasoned, very well thought out and very solidly executed so they don't break anything. There's no, tr there's, there's, I would maybe argue very little to no trade-offs when you add a feature to Bitcoin. Whereas like when you add a feature to a shitcoin has a certain feature because it trades off something that Bitcoin doesn't, is, isn't willing to trade off, whether it's like security, uh, decentralization or whatever else. Shitcoins are trading off some things to add more complexity and features, whereas Bitcoin is not willing to do that. Uh, but it is possible to make upgrades and changes or well it's more additions to the to the protocol without necessarily having the trade-offs that other shitcoins accept yeah yeah that's yeah. right and uh, it's good you mentioned the trade-offs because uh, as i was researching taproot and like the future iterations of taproot 
that's what actually I believe it's Peter Wheeler uh, mentions that the current iteration of Taproot is actually uh, stripped down of all the new research and stuff that we don't understand the trade-offs of yet even though it would be very uh, convenient and very exciting to have stuff like cross input signature aggregation uh, CISA uh, we still don't understand the full trade-offs of that yeah. so it's going to take a uh, uh, few more year, few, few more years before we got uh, like uh, uh, cheap coin joins uh, in, uh, that would be basically much cheaper than simple spends which is like what I'm very excited about and people like Matt Odell are excited about it and such but uh, it's not a part of this iteration of Taproot because there are unknown trade-offs maybe there are no trade-offs but we still don't know properly yeah. so yeah we don't have a marketing team so there's nobody to there's nobody to say like oh we need to ignore the we don't we need to ignore the fact that we don't know if there's going to be a trade-off for selling this ideal and selling this action because otherwise if we, if we admit that you know the vaccine manufacturers aren't saying as an example like oh you might die from taking the vaccine right mm -hmm. even though that's a possibility right and and but bitcoin doesn't isn't worried about marketing bitcoin and only showing one side or only showing the potential pros we want to make sure we don't break it whereas like ethereum as an example <clears throat> excuse me you know you'll see vitalik proposing something magical that changing this that or the other but there isn't a lot of discussion around like what the trade-offs of that are and i think the reason why people go for crypto as opposed to bitcoin is because they're sold this they don't they don't understand first of all trade-offs because they don't understand the differences and similarities between the cryptocurrencies and so they're sold this thing that's like it's bitcoin plus faster transactions and everything else and no minuses <laughs> there's no there's no it's de it's still because the marketing teams or however it's sold are still telling you that it's decentralized but it's not as decentralized as bitcoin or decentralized at all it's yeah. it's it's a lie it's a that's why like i guess we say it's a scam um and people don't realize this yeah yeah uh, bitcoin moves slow and breaks nothing and shit coins have to move fast and break <laughs> like the first thing they bro break is uh, the decentralized consensus usually and uh, uh, the precedent of uh, not introducing some uh, uh, changes that would require hard, hard forks and such yeah uh, that's like uh, five years ago why i became skeptical with uh, ethereum because i saw this mentality that you could just uh, shove down everybody's throats uh, the latest cool change latest cool update in form of hard fork and ethereum make like 10 hard forks to this date or something and they regularly uh, forget about their difficulty bomb and it's just such such a clusterfuck it's unbelievable it's almost difficulty bombs almost like the debt ceiling <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> just, that's a good just analogy. always push yeah. it always always push it back push it back anyway um yeah uh, so you mentioned coin joining i think this leads us uh nicely uh to talking a little bit about trezor um what you do there perhaps and then talking about yeah trezor itself and and some of the new features that are going to come out but yeah it's, you um tell us what you do for trezor sure 
So my official title is uh, Brand Ambassador for Trezor. Uh, and like my sort of unofficial title is Bitcoin Ambassador at Trezor. Uh, because to properly represent uh, like the values and mission of Trezor, you need to understand basically why Bitcoin matters, why you should take it seriously, why uh, holding your coins at an exchange is uh, is, is a heresy basically, <laughs> and uh, how it all works and why it all matters basically. So uh, what and from a more like down to earth perspective, what I do is uh, I write articles for Bitcoin magazine where I explain, for example, I explained uh, Shamir backup and how it uh, works with uh, inheritance planning and why sh you should you should care about uh, what happens to your Bitcoin if you die or if something happens to you. Uh, that's uh, often quite neglected. Uh, another like field of articles I uh, like, like to explore is uh, Bitcoin as uh, global non-state money and what are the consequences of that if Bitcoin truly is the global non-state money uh, how we are going to work with Bitcoin because mm, not every one of us can own their own UTXO so we need these for the layers what it means uh, in terms of uh, not necessarily price but more like a purchasing power of Bitcoin because price uh, in fiat terms won't matter uh, in a few years yeah. it doesn't matter for people for, from Lebanon like it doesn't matter if Bitcoin is making new all-time highs if the currency uh, is collapsing right yeah. and this is basically going to happen to all the fiat currencies but people don't just just don't see it yet and uh, aren't willing to admit that so and just to clarify uh, on that point um, on on like the fiat price doesn't matter because I I think this was something I was like I didn't get the profoundity of until recently. Is that, uh, am I right in saying it's because what matters ultimately is the purchasing power of that Bitcoin, is the goods and services that you can acquire, not the fiat amount? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's that's exactly right. Because, uh, yeah, uh, it's hard for us to understand. Uh, people tie the two, have... people tie fiat and purchasing power together. More fiat, more purchasing power, and they don't understand that that's not the case always, right? No, no, no. Uh, purchasing power means uh, what your 1000 sets are going to buy you yeah. now and in the future and this is going to go up uh, major major time and uh, it, it won't matter necessarily how much bitcoin is worth in fiat currencies because maybe uh, people won't be willing to sell bitcoin for fiat currencies anymore <laughs> like yeah. uh, I, i'm not sure who's uh, willing to sell bitcoin in lebanon for lebanese pounds or in Venezuela uh, or, or, or stuff like that uh, because uh, sooner or later in various fiat currencies there will come a time where fiat won't buy you Bitcoin anymore and then the fiat uh, price tag doesn't matter anymore and what matters is what you can actually buy with your Bitcoin Yep, perfect, perfect. That's a very important point for people to understand that. And uh, it's useful to have this like uh, end game in mind, especially if there's a bear market coming or if you 
uh, go through some volatility like now we are like 40% below the ATH uh, and you should actually welcome like the drops and the bear markets because it allows you to uh, make uh, the end game for you and your family that much better because you can stack more sets at, uh, <laughs> for, for the same for the same amount of fiat currencies which are going to be worthless in the future so yeah that's a huge part of what i'm trying to do here at trezor to explain why it all matters and why it's not just uh, like you can just uh, deposit your dollars at coinbase buy some multiple shit coins that they recommend or some influencers recommend sell it in a, in a year pay your taxes and just go about your life uh, bitcoin for me is savings it's uh, what the fiat currencies uh, cannot do anymore you cannot save your purchasing power in fiat currencies anymore because the interest rates are usually lower than the inflation rate especially in the past two years so uh, what bitcoin allows you is uh, to be quite conservative with your money to just uh, put away part of your earnings, part of your wealth, safeguard it for yourself in Trezor with Shamir backup set up and everything and sort of like forget about it and do it like every month, just uh, save a few percent for a few percent of your earnings in Bitcoin. And there is no counterparty failure risk. Uh, uh, and uh, there is no risk of being uh, uh, diluted by you know either by the company uh, like Tesla shares uh, got diluted and such or by the monetary policy basically so uh, it's a it's it's uh, it's a tough task to explain to people why Bitcoin is actually very conservative and why sh they should have this conservative mentality that it's not about fast gains it's not about uh, making more fiat uh, it's about just uh, preserving your purchasing power as you know as secure and private manner as possible yeah awesome i mean i what i would say is uh it, and especially if your superiors are listening that uh they've chosen they've picked the right man for the job uh, i think you do <laughs> just from you know my interaction with you here and reading your article uh, my mom is into bitcoin as well and she does. She helps me do research for this podcast uh, as a way of learning it. She wants to do it to help to help her understand and learn more. She's like start, starting to try and learn about the tech. And she read your article as part of her research uh, to give me some notes. And she said it was amazing. And she got uh, lots of new resources to check out and things to to learn about that she didn't understand. So again, I would highly recommend people go and check out your article in BTC Times and also your writing in um, Bitcoin Magazine. Um, in in terms of so i'm getting an impression and i well i think everyone is like that you're not for shit coins and that trezor is a bitcoin first company um, but one of the things so trezor was the first hardware wallet actually i lie i got a ledger first and then i immediately once it was delivered read about the hack the data breach that they had and then i was like they handled it so terribly that i just got rid of my ledger and i got a, a, a trezor um but then uh, as I learned more about Bitcoin and shitcoins and, and the, I was like, I wondered why Trezor. Uh, so there's this push in Bitcoin land for like, oh, use Bitcoin only wallets because 
it's better. They're not focusing on shit coins. And so there's less likely to be like a security issue or a bug in the wallet due to some uh, shit coin support. And, and mm -hmm. I was wondering, like, as I got to know Trezor more and more, like the people there seem to be very aligned and focused on Bitcoin, yet the wallet supports um, a lot of other coins as well. Uh, and then I heard you explain how that all works uh, on the Bit Refill podcast. And I was just wondering if you could uh, uh, talk about that as well, because the way you guys support uh, shit coins isn't necessarily a resource drain on Trezor, right? Yeah, that's right. So, um, yeah, like how the altcoin integrations work is uh, the community basically has to do their own pull request. We have the guidelines. We, of course, check like uh, the integrity of the pull request and then we integrate it in uh, the latest firm firmware. But uh, the most work to be done is on the part of the community. So if some altcoin community wants to integrate, they have to uh, do their job. And uh, sometimes like funny things happen, like uh, they break basically the compatibility that has happened with some altcoin like half a year ago. And we reached out to them and they basically didn't care. It was some dying altcoin. Uh, so uh, you mean yeah. as in they, they make a change and then they it breaks, some, it breaks yeah, their, own their own coins compatibility with the wallet. Yes. And then yes. they can't use it anymore and they don't okay got it that <laughs> sometimes happens yeah yeah fair. uh regarding uh, the potential uh attack surface of altcoins uh like funny thing is uh the same attack surface is possible with bitcoin testnet this is what uh, like this vulnerability has been in ledger their bitcoin uh, their bitcoin application as well due to Bitcoin testnet uh, being supported and it has been uh, also in cold card because they also support Bitcoin testnet. Mm. So this is quite a big like potential attack ve vector, but we are aware of it and everybody's aware of it and uh, it has been patched. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Uh, yep. And when you check out actually like uh, Trezor contributions to Bitcoin, you can f find quite a lot of BIPs that uh, Stick and Slash made over the years. Uh, Shamir Backup uh, has been, uh, like the Shamir uh, scheme has been readjusted to like Bitcoin security in form of Shamir Backup that has been done by Trezor and it's an open standard and uh, I believe one or two other hardware wallets are also supporting it. So, and Taproot was implemented uh, like on day one in here, and we are actively working on implementing CoinJoin on top of Taproot. So the focus here of our developers is on Bitcoin. It's a, like you say, it's a Bitcoin first company. And um, like, as I understand the support for altcoins and uh, being open to this altcoin or community is as follows. I believe in the end, people are going to become Bitcoiners. It can take, take them several years to do so. Uh, I'm quite happy, uh, like Trezor supported Litecoin all these years ago when I still was like a Litecoiner and uh, just took it seriously. Uh, because I already had the device in my hand and when I became a Bitcoiner, it was simple for me to just uh, readjust. Uh, 
and I really believe Bitcoin, or sorry, Trezor is the best hardware wallet out there because it's fully open source. It has uh, like the longest track record. We have like the bug, bug, uh, bug bounty program and such. We are working on the open source secure element. So uh, having the best in class security, even for people that are not 100% Bitcoiners, is still providing a valuable service and these people are going to become Bitcoiners in the end. So uh, it's not like uh, something hypocritical because we are providing uh, the security. What we actually sell to people is reliable security. Uh, and these people like uh, are going to be aligned uh, value-wise with us in the end because uh, bear markets create Bitcoiners. Yeah. It's easy to be a shitcoiner in the bull market in the past two years, but uh, these JPEGs are going to zero. These like DeFi coins are going to like minus 99% and such. And this is what creates Bitcoiners in the end. Yeah, agreed. Uh, it's almost like, I guess you could say like almost a Trojan horse that like you said, somebody might use it for whatever Litecoin, but then when they become, they eventually become a Bitcoiner, they already have a Trezor uh, and then they'll just use that, which is, uh, and you're, yeah, you're yep. providing, as you said, good security, uh, a long history and and aligned ethos with, with Bitcoin. And I guess it's also like aligns with like sort of free market libertarian that you allow other people to do whatever they want if they want to, uh, being open source, you know, you're not saying to someone, oh, even if you do it yourself, you can't build uh, Litecoin support. You can. Uh, you guys yeah. just focus on what you want. Sure, sure. But uh, then again, I uh, completely see why some manufacturers uh, go ju with just Bitcoin only uh, devices. That's totally fine. Mm -hmm. And uh, I actually value like their inputs and their writings and thoughts and such. Yeah. Uh, there's part of pragmatism in like Trezor's approach and partially uh, not limiting like uh, our customer base and uh, potential future Bitcoiners to only those that actually see the value just in Bitcoin for now. Because I, yeah, uh, the thing is, uh, I don't want to like uh, shitcoin the shit on the competition and such, but uh, <sighs> If you check out like uh, Ledger's communication, it's all about Web3 and NFTs, basically. There's not much Bitcoin content there. Yeah. So if we didn't uh, like support altcoins, uh, people would have just basically one choice, just to go to Ledger and they will be constantly bombarded with this content. We have the support for altcoins. So many altcoiners uh, opt to by Trezor, for example, because it's a fully open source yep. and they get the exposure to like Bitcoin narrative and why Bitcoin matters. And uh, like when we uh, write about like the crypto industry at large, we usually point out that Bitcoin is what usually survives in the end and why why that is the case and such. So uh, like it's it's fine to be uh, like a Bitcoin maximalist, even product-wise, but uh, it doesn't work on the like educational and outreach level as much because you just uh, uh, focus on 
those that already uh you know you are speaking to the choir you know yeah kind yeah. of thing yeah yeah uh, that's a that's a fantastic point and actually you've you've shifted my mindset um because yeah i i own a treasure and i've owned a ledger before and no longer and then i was slowly like buying more bitcoin only devices because i was like bitcoin maximalist hardware and everything but i come i hadn't thought about the angle that you've just posed that if like we don't yeah, if, if we don't have a treasure, then you, there's a potential for everyone to end up on Ledger or some other uh, some other hardware wallet that's, that's uh, I guess, uh, got a wider reach, not so narrow, like preaching to the choir reach. So mm, yeah. that's a fantastic point. Um, yeah. Uh, well, and uh, that said, uh, I recommend Stefan, Stefan Liberas' uh, interview with uh, Ledger Bitcoin app developer. And he seems like a solid Bitcoin guy. Like, uh, I, I don't want to criticize Ledger yeah, yeah. that much because uh, they do a lot of good stuff. And I really enjoyed this interview, learned a lot about PSBT and hardware wallets and uh, output de descriptors and such. It's episode 337. It came out just recently. Cool. Well, I put that in the show. Three th yeah, 337. I put that in the show notes. Look, I wanted to talk to you about... Um, like coin joining, pay joining, taproot. Um, but I I have a stop in a little bit, and I uh, hopefully maybe one day we can do a we can do a a round two with you because uh, I've got lots of notes of other stuff that I haven't talked about, and perhaps we can go back and like I can uh, ask you about those things, and we can dig deeper into some topics. Uh, and maybe since we know that like it's a it's a flowing conversation, we can we can do a super pod. And leave <laughs> leave some time, but because um, I really want to. One thing I'm I'm really interested, selfishly, uh, to ask you is like how you handle everything. Because uh, I'll just give you a, a brief. So, um, yeah, just a brief overview of where I'm at. So I'm doing this podcast. Uh, I want to turn this is Bitcoin into. Uh, I want to create a, a really good Bitcoin resource website uh, with original, but also just the best content that's made by other people so that it's a one-stop shop hopefully present it in a way that like people can find the information they want really easily uh but yeah i i, I so i have my own thing going with this is bitcoin and the podcast um then i'm working with brains and slush pool um a few hours a day uh doing some marketing writing and stuff and then now i have uh i have btc times as well and i know you do a bunch of stuff like you do your own podcast, you write books, you're doing, you're an ambassador for Trezor, you're going on other people's podcasts, you're writing articles. Like, can you take me through, well, maybe we can like, we can address this from two angles. Like, can you take me through a typical day of yours? Like, how do you organize <laughs> yourself to do all, to achieve so much? Because I, I would say I'm pretty disorganized in general. So I, I'd like to learn from people who are very productive and how they do things. Uh, and, and just generally ethos, like how do you approach juggling all these different balls and then what does a typical day look like for you all right all right uh good topic so a typical day is like and now it's going to sound like i brag because in january i usually uh like have a uh, more high-powered uh, kind of month so uh right now it's like i wake up at 6 30 a.m i do my workouts uh, right now I'm doing some uh, pull-up program 
uh, at home. I have got a pull-up bar at home, highly recommend it. Then I take my kids to school or kindergarten. Uh, right now I don't usually uh, have a breakfast. I'm doing an intermittent fasting kind of thing. Uh, when I go to the office, I, uh, I use the public transport, so I listen to podcasts on the way. Usually Stefan Livera or Tales from the Crypt or Seyfedeen or uh, Bitcoin Rapid Fire, What's Bitten and these high quality podcasts. Uh, in the office, I usually work on some articles or prepa preparing for like po podcast appearances and such. Right now, I'm in the process of uh, building uh, like Satoshi Labs podcasting studio. So that's a big project I'm trying to handle right now. Uh, and uh, on my way back home, I listen to more Bitcoin podcasts, of course. And in the evening, I usually uh, apart from being with my family, with kids, <coughs> so once the kids go to bed after 10 p.m., I usually uh, do some stuff on like my private projects, which is uh, uh, the Czech Bitcoin podcast, uh, my website, my e-shop, uh, and like some accounting and such. And usually I go to sleep at between 11 p.m. and uh, midnight. Wow. Yeah. Okay, awesome. That's a that's an awesome day. Like what what uh, helped a lot is having a full time job that's focused just on Bitcoin and on producing this Bitcoin content, because uh, it's very synergistic. Like what I do for Satoshi Labs helps me a lot with producing the Czech content, uh, and uh, I always got like a lot of topics to talk about when it comes to Bitcoin or economics and such. So I don't have to prepare as much for being at some conference or talking with some podcast guests and such. Uh, when I used to work for corporations in like a food industry, it was actually much, uh, much uh, tougher to focus on like studying uh, Bitcoin and creating Bitcoin content. It's good to have a Bitcoin job to, you know, have this kind of uh, a higher volume of out output yeah agreed yeah everything when you're i guess focusing on bitcoin then every little bit that you do anywhere feeds into the other bit and helps you uh yeah and like you said like you know you're you're already when you go to a conference you're so well versed from spending all this time learning and immersed that you don't have to prepare as much which is it's awesome you uh it's almost like compounding your your work uh yeah. Yeah, yeah, different, that, yeah, that's it. It's a it's a compound effect. Yeah, cool. And awesome. like uh, maybe one, uh, I like to recommend books like all the time because uh, that's where I learn a lot of stuff from. So totally Bitcoin unrelated, but what has uh, kicked me to a higher level of productivity was one particular book. It's by David Goggins. Uh, uh, it's yep. called Can't Hurt Me. You know that? Yep. Yeah, I th yeah, I've like listened <laughs> to almost all of it. I also like yeah. I also like Jocko Willink's. Uh, Jocko Willink, uh, yeah. The, the, he has a he what is discipline equals freedom field manual. Yeah. Have you read that? Yeah, I've read uh, the other book. What's it called? He's got uh, uh, owner extreme ownership. Extreme ownership. Yeah. yeah, that's also good. These two yeah. books I've read them uh, like like thirteen months ago, like in December twenty twenty. Uh, they well, like I was. Uh, 
I, I have no words. <laughs> like, uh, I don't like the term like motivational speech or anything, but uh, these are real people talking about like real lives and uh, why like wasting time is just wasting your life and you should really strive to do best and do what uh, fulfills you, of course because then you are in this flow mode, everything is synergistic. So yeah, these two books I heavily recommend. Yeah, I mean, the scarcest, uh, talking about scarcity and, and limited supply assets and stuff, like time is the most scarce asset that we have, right? So yeah, uh, yeah doing, just being uh, purposeful with what you're doing and doing something that you love is a big life hack you could call it yeah yeah but and i don't watch football like many czechs uh, <laughs> waste such amount of time on there's, football i mean there, there's such a difference i used to be a humongous football fan and just all sorts of other stuff like you know spending habits were so i call it like the you know i tweeted it the other day somebody else has tweeted this before but it's like the before bitcoin and after bitcoin like i just <laughs> there's so much more focus on a few things that are important and everything else has fallen by the wayside yeah that's yeah. right amazing i have the same approach uh, for example in my diet like uh, i'm heavily carnivore leaning uh, which is basically just a pure elimination diet where you just eliminate all the crap and you end up with uh, animal based basically and uh, i've got the same approach with uh, exercise just doing uh, just doing what's the most effective with reading, listening to podcasts and such. Yeah. Um, I am five days into a carnivore experiment right now. <laughs> and I honestly, the first two times, so I have like stomach, uh, I've like chronic stomach issues that are autoimmune related. So yeah. trying different diets and stuff has just been an experiment to see what like what works what doesn't i've never managed to do carnivore for more than like 24 hours just because it had like very bad impact and i heard this is possible <laughs> but i tr i keep trying I, I this is the third time i'm trying it and i'm five days into it and the what i will say is remarkable is sometimes like it's a struggle i just don't want to eat because i'm like i just don't want to eat another piece of meat but i don't have the craving to eat anything else i can i'm okay not eating for much longer periods of time than I am when I'm eating, you know, carbs, pizza, chocolate, and other stuff in my diet. Um, yeah. So that that's been the most remarkable thing. It's just like the 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 hunger. It's like if I if I don't need if I don't eat for 16 hours because I don't feel like it, I'm not hungry to eat. I'm yeah. mostly eating. Yeah. Like I, I can see how you can move to a one meal a day uh, type of 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 schedule eating carnivore. Uh, so. I'm gonna keep it going as long as I feel okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, do check out Paul Saladino. Uh, his okay. book uh, Carnivore Code is what uh, convinced me to try it. He's got podcasts. He's active on Twitter and such. And like the thing about car uh, carnivorism is, it's not just meat. You can eat like eggs. Yeah, cheese, uh, right? Dairy, dairy. Yeah, yeah. If you if yeah. you don't have a problem with that. Yeah. And. Uh, uh, Broth, yeah, milk. I'm doing milk. I'm doing some beef. Yeah, yeah, bone broth. Yeah, all of bone that. Broth, all of that. Yeah. Safe Dean has a great page on his website, safedean.com forward slash meat. If you've oh. ever read that, yeah, it's really good. It's really good. I have to check it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so he has a yeah about becoming carnivore and tips on you know even like he what he uses to cook meat like different 
ov- meat oven things and stuff. So I uh, yeah. recommend that people check that out. And I'll check this uh, Paul Saladino book out as well. I hadn't heard of it. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I, um, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I wish I had more time to carry on and dig deeper into some topics. But I, you know, I really, really, really appreciate you reaching out to me uh, and and suggesting that we that we do a, a podcast together. Uh, I've gotten to know you a little bit better, which is awesome. I love making new friends and connections in, in Bitcoin. Uh, and I will be coming to Prague uh, sometime this year as well. I'll be at Bitcoin 2022, I, I, I think. Are you going to be there? Yeah, I should be done. Yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah. hopefully we get to meet, meet in real life. When I went to El Salvador, I met some of, your, uh, of the Trezor uh, guys and girls. They were in the booth next to us. It's just amazing to meet Bitcoiners and hang out in real life. So hopefully we can do it soon. And yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. I've had a yeah. lot of fun with this. Yeah.